they do do it at the fruit market and they get it right, you've got the opportunity for serious public transport. Virtually nobody would need to actually be driving sure. to see the gas. You know, you get there by cycling, walking, light rail, buses, the works. You know, you could build something really beautiful as well rather than another kind of concrete, corrugated, uh, plastic kind of identikit, lower league stadium. It'd be amazing to build one of wood in central Bristol. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. David Goldblatt is an award-winning writer and broadcaster living in Bristol. His book, The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football, has been described as the seminal football history book. His latest work has seen him look at climate change and its impact on sport in a report commissioned by the Rapid Transition Alliance. The remarkable results are recently covered in The Guardian and BBC Radio 4. We talk sport, climate change, local football clubs and how you can get involved at home. All right. How are you doing, David? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you, Neil. I wanted specifically to, to have a chat with you about your recent work around sport and its impact on the environment. Is this something that's become more prominent to you recently? It has deep roots for me. So back in the day in, in another life, I did a PhD in the late 1980s, early 1990s on sociological theory and environmental degradation. So right. like the beginning of my academic career was super focused on the sociology and politics of climate change. But I ended up taking a kind of, you know, a left turn around the turn of the century, which was football history and sociology. But along the way, I've kind of often found myself coming back to the issue of climate change through the lens of football. I mean, it just occurs to me in an era of how can I put it, um, sort of unparalleled risk and uncertainty. You know, it's no surprise that football's the world's most popular game because that's what it does. You know, just like written into the code of the game is spontaneity and uncertainty and extraordinary turnarounds and shit you just couldn't believe was going to happen. And that somehow feels really appropriate to the age. whole kind of green kind of stuff wouldn't be something that would necessarily have traditionally been on the radar if you're sort of average football fan, would it really? No, I mean, football, really the world of sport has only really started taking the issue of environment in any way seriously in the last sort of 10 years or so. But, you know, football's played outdoors. A lot of sport is played outdoors. There's a lot of weather. There's a lot of weather in sport and the weather is changing. I read your piece uh, i read a piece in the guardian uh, about um, about your report and you were quoted and i thought it was just quite interesting you said few human practices offer such an extraordinary large global and socially diverse constituency as those playing and following sport it's an extraordinary opportunity to speak to people through football i mean you know what can i say marcus rashford you know there yeah. is the power and the potency yeah. of athlete activism and the transformation yeah. of sporting celebrity into social and cultural and political power. 
I mean, absolutely incredible. It's one of the best things that's happened in English football in my life. So he came out, didn't he, in in in, um, in support of the whole holiday hunger kind of campaign and managed to sort of single-handedly get Boris to reverse his decision on or from free school meals to to kids in the summer. Yeah. Um, we face a really gigantic task. Um, you know, we need certainly in the global north to be doing most of our decarbonisation in the next 10 years if we are to keep average climate t- temperature to, you know, 1.5 degrees C increases. I mean, that's the message very clearly from the IPCC. So to do that, you know, and to make the structural transformations in energy, transport, agriculture, planning, urban space, you know, pretty much everything in that sort of speed, you need enormous political consensus. It's got to be the thing like, it's not even a kind of debate about it. It's just like, get on with it. And we're not there yet, but we need to be. I mean, it's worth noting that depending on how you calculate it, sports own global carbon footprint is equivalent to a reasonably sized nation state. So in and of itself, sport has to make a contribution to the wider transformation. Same as Barbados. You no, say, much you? bigger than that. Much bigger than Barbados. The Olympics is Barbados. But of course, global sport is a whole lot more than that. You know, sport reaches a kind of, as, as you say, a, a huge constituency that is, you know, for the most part, not quite focusing on climate change. And sport itself is in peril by climate change. So all the kind of essential ingredients of, you know, yeah. a massive public education and transformation program to deal with this are available if sport, you know, actually wants to engage. Do the right thing now. I mean, if we've learned one thing, surely, from the experience of the coronavirus pandemic, listen very seriously to what the scientists are saying. Assume that the worst case scenario really can happen on your watch, not later down the line. And if you're going to do something about it, act radically now, because it's much cheaper to do so than leave it to when the catastrophe comes. You know, what particular elements of sport itself are are, are damaging to the climate? Well, it's a mixture of things. You know, it's uh, huge amounts of concrete to build stadiums very large amounts of expensive freighted meat products being eaten inside stadiums, large amounts of land use, pesticide use, energy use, but above all, transport of players, officials and spectators uh, and the use of global aviation. I mean, like 65% of the carbon footprint of the World Cup, for example, is spectator travel on planes. And this is true too. Uh, domestic football though obviously aviation is a smaller component there's a lot of people moving and generating a lot of carbon building stadiums running floodlights there's a lot of energy used in sports of different kinds a lot of materials being made and don't forget you know broadcasting sport has a huge carbon footprint you know it is not carbon free watching the premier league on your tablet in fact actually it's very very carbon intensive because of the amount of energy being used in server farms and the cost of building the uh, internet infrastructure. And then there's the global sportswear industry, you know, which has a gigantic carbon footprint, freighting, you know, everything from tennis balls to sweatbands, you know, through huge global supply chains in which the massive carbon costs of all that transport are completely discounted. So, you know, all sorts of ways. Just like this is going to happen, this is happening now. 
This is not going, you know, this is not down the road. You know, the Tokyo Olympics have had the move, the marathon, if they happen in 2021 after postponement, you know, to yeah. Sapporo, a thousand kilometres north, because the weather in Tokyo these days in August makes it completely impossible to run those kinds of events. It's dangerous. Yeah. You know, by 2050, 23 of the 92 English football league grounds are going to be partially or completely flooded on an annual basis due to sea level rises. I mean, Grimsby Town, who I love after seeing Rovers beat them in uh, the conference final at Wembley a few years back, you know, they should seriously think about taking up water polo because that's what's coming. Yeah. yeah. Just on those standalone big events, the World Cup, the Olympics, um, you know, the European Championship, athletics, whatever that is, he's, is there almost a, 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 an acknowledgement now that actually that isn't sustainable environmentally to continue to do that now? Or is this the really, really early seeds of that conversation taking place? Well, it depends what you mean by sustainable, but I think the debate... Um, at its current, at its current how, how things are done now. I, I mean, you know, the World Cup generates about 2.5 to 3 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent, which is, you know, what a small Caribbean island produces. Uh, in a year uh, and don't forget you know the world cup of course is the tip of the iceberg you know there's an awful lot of other international tournaments women's world cups under 17 world cups the champions league it's equivalent on every continent you know there's a lot going on yeah. so the question we have to ask is i mean global sport generally has to say if you're going to continue along this line uh, in anything close to your current form, you have to offset your carbon aviation emissions. And there is a huge debate as to whether most offset schemes, you know, where you kind of invest in carbon capture technology or a reforestation program so that the carbon you've generated is notionally sucked back back out of the atmosphere. There's a huge debate as to whether they work. So there's a real issue around that. Uh, And I think, to be honest, it may be that we have to think about fewer international tournaments with fewer international spectators. You know, I don't think that's entirely the end of the world. I mean, my experience of the World Cup recently is that it's turned into a rather sort of well-heeled holiday. And it's often quite a dismal atmosphere inside the stadiums. And the tickets are kind of silly money. Like in South Africa, you know, it would have been a lot better if more South Africans could have afforded tickets and we had less people flying in on, you know, business class flights. One thing that was kind of suggested was that potentially the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, the Summer Olympics, and I would guess perhaps the World Cup, I don't know, are just held in the same place. Would, would that have a would that have any impact environmentally or because people would still travel, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really, you know, that tries to deal with the white elephant, large capital costs of mega events, you know, so yeah. you just build them once and then you haven't got to build them again. The issue there, first and foremost, with infrastructure is, um, you know, build carbon zero to infrastructure. Stop mm. building gigantic concrete, pharaonic monoliths that then have no use afterwards you know take a look out of forest green rovers book who are about to build the first new wooden stadium in this country for 120 years that is going to be carbon zero so i think that's it you know that's a much more important thing than just building it once 
also like where's it going to go what we're going to put it in greece i mean what does that mean you know that we're going to have it permanently in europe i just really struggle i mean if the olympics and the world cup have significant enough uh cultural political social purchase that it is worth continuing with them then I think we have to maintain the cosmopolitan sort of international flavour of it moving around. I mean, where's the World Cup going to go permanently? England? Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it would kind of, it would cause... It's just like, that's not... Yeah, an international, massive, huge international... That's, that's not, that's not happening. On the one hand, particularly with regards to the Olympics, you know, um, I'm really, really very sceptical. The... Um, you know, the conservative view, which I understand is, you know, you don't mess with international institutions because they're really difficult to build, but very easy to destroy. And, you know, we're destroying and fragmenting a lot of the ones we do have at the moment. So it's not a great moment for that. Um, On the other hand, you know, I'm getting to the point where I think the Olympics in its current form and format is just sort of unjustifiable. Uh, I'm really struggling. It's kind of sold, isn't it? It's something that will make a lot of money for for individual cities. It will have a sort of sustainable growth. But there there isn't really many examples where that is the case. You know, I can't think really of many cities. Maybe London might be. Maybe London may actually be one one of the um, examples that actually goes. Well, against- only if you think Westfield is progress. I mean, you know, that is the major legacy. The Olympic yeah, Park true. remains. Yeah. Pretty anodyne and underused. West Ham United, a private institution, have been given pretty much two hundred and fifty million pounds worth of stadium, if not more. You know, on a peppercorn rent, um, and most of the you know the Olympic yeah. Village is bought by the Qatari Investment Authority with no social yeah. housing. So I'm really struggling to see that as a package that was worth you know something in the region of 12 to $13 billion. And, you know, take a walk out onto Stratford High Street. Old Stratford High Street really has not changed, you know. Fried chicken shops, vape shops, empty shops. It's not basically moved. It's not moved on. And the legacy of more people exercising and healthier lifestyles, it's like the Sport England activity study show, it's gone down. Because, I was about to jump in on that, David, and just say that back then I was working in sport development and the Olympics coming to London wasn't sold as a, as a London thing. It was a UK national thing. And as you say, very much in terms of raising participation in sports, loads of money was thrown into it. And and the bottom line is it hasn't worked. No. You know, certainly what really happened was lots of funding, a very, a very short space of time, pre-Olympics, and there was a kind of a small pot post-legacy, maybe like a year, 18 months afterwards. And then literally what then happened, the tap was turned off yeah. and there was nothing. <laughs> and in many regards, it, probably not even having that money in the first place would have made people kind of think a bit more in terms of setting up systems and structures of how to support and develop more people, more institutions to increase participation. Investment in elite sport in the hope that it will be a kind of a catalyst for more people playing sport. You've just got to move away from that. You've got to reprioritize grassroots sport. You've got to understand that the way the way people come to sport and exercise 
you know, and stay with it is much, much more complicated than the, oh, Usain Bolt's great, I must become a sprinter, turns into a lifetime of athletic participation, you know. I mean, look at Finland, you know, look at where where has got the highest participation rate in exercise in the world, Finland, right, particularly amongst elderly people as well, which is another issue I have with the Olympics. And indeed, much of the sporting world, it's like, it's always about youth, 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 youth. And that's fine. Bless the youth. I love them. But why are we not all talking as much about old folks? We're an aging society that doesn't move. We really, really, you want bang for your kind of public health bug. It's like we need walking football is what needs to be happening in the biggest possible way. I hate it in the middle of a podcast when somebody jumps in to try and sell you something really does my head in join the bristol cable the city's only community-owned newspaper as a member from just one pound a month you get to help steer the cable forward as we build an alternative to the failing mainstream media controversial that is that bit that's a that was from the producer that i read that cheers in, in an odd kind of way the, the kind of the global lockdown could be seen as a an experiment that those ideas that you're and proponents you're putting forward around how maybe we can do sport more environmentally is, is this is this been quite a good testing ground then obviously gradually now there'll be a dripping of different sports in empty stadiums is is this a good opportunity in time now to actually take stock of the stuff that you're saying i hope so yeah i hope so i mean it has definitely been a moment where it's been very disruptive to people's um sense of emotional personal and collective security you know the world does just look different so you know disruption is always a good moment to then be asking new and difficult questions and uh, and thinking about change i mean you know as ever it's pessimism of the of the intellect optimism of the will yeah. um it is potentially it's an interesting year you know britain was meant to be hosting COP24, is it? Which is, you know, the sort of annual, what are we doing about climate change conference by the UN and trying Mm -hmm. to push the Paris Accords on and get people to sign up to them. And there was going to be a component on sport because the UN has actually elaborated, along with some of the leading international sports bodies, a uh, framework for climate action for sport. Um, which And encourage, you know, the world's sporting bodies to sign up to it um, I mean, it's commitments, I have to say, are um, very, too woolly for my liking. But sure. the idea that there is, you know, uh, an international global agreement and body amongst all sporting authorities to commit to carbon zero sport is um, is important. And that was going to be, a, it's a good opportunity this year to be talking about it. And that's and there's an aim, isn't there, for it to be carbon neutral by 2050? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they're saying 2050. I mean... That you can leave it to 2050 model is a um, climatologically perilous, according to the IPCC itself. And this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In essence, the United Nations body that assesses everything that's scientific connected to climate change. And, you know, if you, do, if you say that, you can guarantee that this generation... Well, of... just kicking the can down the road psychologically. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we need, you know, but we need action now. 
So um, I'm arguing, you know, that people, they need to change the wording of the framework and say, you know, if you sign up, you know, you need to commit to being carbon zero in a decade. You need to immediately draw up your plan. And, you know, there is some, again, really good progress. Uh, World Athletics, for example, which used to be the International Amateur Athletics Federation, now World Athletics, have committed to being carbon zero with the exception of spectator attendance, but that, you know, we can argue about that. But, you know, in terms of all the events they host, the organisation itself, uh, their broadcasters, their sponsors, to be carbon zero by 2030 with a really serious plan to do it, you know, 10% a year, year by year. So the model's there, right? Everybody can sign up to it. I mean, in terms of spectator um, travel, you know, UEFA are committed when they host Euro 2020, obviously now in 2021, are going to basically pay, take out of the uh, the money they get in. They're going to offset the entirety of the aviation carbon emissions of spectators at the tournament. I think sometimes, unless people often only really kind of wake up to the reality of things when it affects them directly, I'm interested in these stats that you've got around the actual direct impact if we don't change anything we do, we'll, which we'll have on the experience of watching sport, which I think if people saw that reality, football fans, you know, you, you're talking about golf as well, they, they, they think right, that, that actually will impact upon their lives. I cannot watch my local team if you're a Grimsby fan because of, you know, flooding, etc. Yeah. So, so on, on here, on your report, you cited... A quarter of English football grounds are at risk from flooding. One in three golf courses will be damaged by sea levels. Uh, this is the one that got me. Half Winter Olympic um, cities will be unreliable hosts. All those things will will have a direct impact upon the audience and spectators. Do you think if that message is banged a bit more, it might kind of seep into people's consciousness we'll and act? S- I don't probably. know. We'll see. Yeah. You can forget about your skiing holiday as well. Like the whole winter yeah. sports industry yeah. is in serious trouble because sure as eggs is eggs, you know, average temperatures in the winter, you know, are increasing. I mean, Siberia's on fire now. So anyone who likes going skiing, yeah. whew, get it in now because, you know, it's really not coming. Um, I mean, I hope so is, is the answer to the question. I don't know. You know, the best I can do is, you know, do the research, find out what's going on and put it out there in as palatable fashion as I can. I hope so. It's pretty obvious to me that climate change is the single most serious collective dilemma that humanity faces for the rest of my life. So, like, what else can you prioritise? Of course, got to do something. This just happens to be my area of expertise. You know, but everybody, I mean, everybody needs to be doing that, you know, something like this in whatever their zone is. This is just my little tiny drop in the ocean. So I do think there's been a shift. And I I have a sort of foot in the world of people that are quite kind of conscious of green issues. But I also have a foot in the world of people that it's just completely not on their radar. Mm. Um, And I I often wonder that, that some of the messaging and some of the some of the way that it's presented doesn't always cut through particularly to some working class communities who, who see them you know that they're not so 
they're, they're more concerned about their day-to-day kind of living mm. they're, they're less kind of maybe you know some but but not you know some are not necessarily thinking on that level and possibly are quite cynical about a lot of this because i feel that the messaging and how they can connect and relate to the subject isn't there which is why I think this is interesting because something like football, like sport, is something that cuts into that culture. So this could be quite key and quite crucial for kind of winning hearts and minds. Yeah, and opening. I, I don't see it as winning. I see it as opening minds. You opening. know, People okay. need to process this stuff and absorb it for themselves. But absolutely, it's worth remembering. One of the experiences of the coronavirus is that when the shit hits the fan, you can be damn sure that pre-existing inequalities and injustices will reproduce themselves in an enlarged fashion. Yeah. And that sure as hell is what's happened in this country, you know, where black and minority ethnic folks and working class folks have got higher death rates, higher infection yeah. rates, and had a worse deal out of furloughing and welfare systems that have been uh, temporarily created. So I would say that's what's coming with climate change. People may feel it's not directly affecting them now, but I am telling you down the line, it is seriously going to affect them. I think it's shifting, but traditionally the image of people that are connected to green issues, if I talk to kind of mates of mine who are football fans and work on building sites, they see that as a kind of, you know, the, the sort of stereotypes of being a bit right on, a, a, you know, a yogurt weaver, all this kind of stuff comes into that and there's a resistance to it. Yeah, yeah. sure. The irony, the irony being that if you come from a working class community, you, you, you are more likely to be affected by this yeah, than anybody. For sure. When we start having serious, you know, 60% of our food is imported. And when global climate systems, yeah. you know, start causing major breakdown in the food exporting parts of the world, like, you know, food's going to be expensive. Who do you think that's going to hit hardest and hit first? I mean... You know, insurance rates are going to be going up, you know, storm damage, extreme weather, flooding. Who gets shafted by flooding the worst? I would really like to see more about, you know, what yeah. sort of distribution of uh, of who gets flooded out, like in Gloucestershire and Tewkesbury. These are climate change and extreme weather events. They're going to hit everybody. I mean, like, seriously, we're all on one planet. How more serious can you put it? This is the biggest shit, like, in, like, two... 300,000 years. And I don't know if you share my, my you know, I'm just kind of reflecting. No, I, I totally, I hear, I hear it. I mean, it's part of the reason I wrote this. That's my yeah. point is like, I know those yeah. folks are not hearing it and they need like everybody to be hearing it. Yeah. Here's another way to open the conversation. I mean, grassroots football yeah. is in serious trouble. You know, like most football grounds, at least they've got serious drainage operations. But, you know, Grassroots football, which is overwhelmingly a working class phenomenon in this country, is going to be completely stuffed by flooding, mm-hmm. extreme weather and increased rainfall. Clubs are already losing six weeks of the year to flooding and more. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that there's been an increase statistically in waterlogged pizzas. I follow the grassroots football organisation that campaigns for better yeah. uh, better pitches for, for grassroots sport and obviously seen a lot of semi-pro clubs go down the route of artificial pitches and, and that there's definitely been an increase I mean and I think that's a good example I guess of what I'm alluding to is if that affects the working man then they'll do something about it do you know what I mean and, but I guess what you're trying to say is we need to do this before we need yeah, to be preemptive now uh, on, on this stuff I'm very, I'm very interested in how we can take these kind of 
these these things that are conceptual yeah. but now you know are real and how we apply them for people to listen and act. But you've only got to look at when Greta Thunberg came to Bristol and the response, you know, for articles that were written in the Bristol Post, the response of, of a certain type of demographic was was pretty kind of horrific. It was really, really hostile. And it was like the message, uh, they're not yeah. even hearing the message. You know, if anything, what, what can we do to make it more effective is, is the question. I suppose you're doing this with what you're doing now. Uh, you know what? What can what can people do throughout their daily walk to try and raise this awareness Ooh. more effectively? What a good question. Um, I mean, you know, social change happens in lots of ways, doesn't it? On the one hand, it's about all the micro day to day interactions with your mates or your work colleagues or your family, where you say something different or you raise a question that's never been asked before. You know, sometimes it's about collective action. Um, I mean, certainly at football clubs in this country who are threatened with serious flooding issues, I think supporter. I would really hope that supporters' trusts and fan groups get on the case and start saying to their board and their owners, you know, have you signed the UN declaration? Have you got a carbon zero plan? Yeah. What are you going to do about this? Did you know? You know, like Middlesbrough, for whom I have a strange soft spot. Right. The Riverside Stadium's going to be all right, but Steve Gibson, the owner, is going to have to buy a flotilla of gondolas <laughs> to get people to that right. ground because it is going to be ringed by flooded planes. And the same is going to be true of yeah. Doncaster, which is going to be ringed right. by a kind of new artificial lake. Yeah. So I think let's have some action. Let's have some action there. What about the Bristol clubs? Anything they, they can do? I mean, are we... The well, City, you know, rugby, the, cricket. the clubs should sign up to the UN because, you know, it's open to clubs. Forest Green Rovers, remember, VFL Wolfsburg right. have signed up, Union Berlin. So Rovers and City yeah. sign up to the UN Sport for Climate Action Framework. Do work out what your carbon footprint is. Draw up a plan to be carbon neutral in a decade and get on with it. Yeah, great. I mean, and there's like a lot of different components to that. I mean, every stadium in the world should have solar panels on their roofs. It's like, what else are you doing with your roof? It's such a no-brainer. It's an opportunity now, isn't it? With Rovers are now building a new training facility. Yeah. It looks like that finally the fruit market thing may be happening for a new stadium. So here's an actual golden opportunity to do just that. Yeah. And, you know, from what I can see, the new school of environmental design and architecture, you can make a fantastic, amazing carbon zero stadium. I mean, if they do do it at the fruit market and they get it right, you've got the opportunity for serious public transport. Virtually nobody would need to actually be driving to see the gas. You know, you get there by cycling, walking, light rail, buses, the works. You know, you could build something really beautiful as well rather than another kind of concrete and corrugated uh, plastic kind of identikit lower league stadium. Yeah. You know, build something beautiful. It'd be amazing to build one of wood in uh, in central Bristol. Well, Bristol prides itself on being this progressive sort of city that does things different than other people, you know. So we've just uh, we've just had a statue pulled down by the people that started a tidal wave, you know, across the globe. So maybe if they listen to this, yeah, that could be could be action. Well, I hope so. You know, I hope 
you know, I hope people read some of this stuff and just really, you know, give it some thought because this is coming to us. How can people read? I I want to direct people to your report, Playing Against the Clock. So it's available. It was sponsored by two organisations, the Rapid Transition Alliance, who are a network of environmental groups focusing on how can we make really rapid, quick change? How does that happen? So they're the environment side. And then the sports side is a fabulous Danish organisation, an NGO called Play the Game. And they call themselves the home for the homeless questions and people in sport. So it's a sort of global network and conference of all the alt-sport people. So critical journalists, athlete activists, progressive administrators, interesting folks. And they, both of their websites are the place to go. And you can find the uh, PDF of the report there. And, and, and there are a couple of articles, um, if you want to read as well. Matthew Taylor has written one in The Guardian. I think the BBC did something. Am I, am I missing any others? If anyone wants uh, to CNN covered it. The Telegraph yeah. covered it. Um, uh, France 24. Um yeah, it's been picked up in a few places. Yeah, you just you can just stick that in a search engine and it'll get you somewhere. Yeah, playing against the clock, and also for people to listen to your Radio Four show, Moonlight in Tokyo, and that is on the BBC Sounds. That's right. Yeah, and what's next for you, David? After this, what's the next on the horizon? I am going to spend on my allotment. I've removed Lovely. enormous quantities of glass, carpet, old baths, about half a ton of stones. I'm going to cart it away and I'm going to build a shed and uh, put up a solar panel uh, so I can, uh, it's going to be my like, little outdoor office and I'm going to grow some fruit and veg. Great. So practicing what you preach. Living, <laughs> living, living, living it. Yeah, love it. Top yeah. man. Well, thanks so much, David, and um, great to talk to you as ever. And, Pleasure, um, Neil. Lovely to be good on. Good luck with the... Um, Good luck with the growing the veg. I'll, I'll join you, but I got to try one thing before I go. What do I do to get rid of slugs? They're yeah. a nightmare, my God. It's war. I mean, it's war. Yeah. What can I tell you? Uh, it, there's no silver bullet. You have to have multiple strategies. You know, you need to... <laughs> you need to... Eggshells. I'm hearing eggshells. Is that right? Yeah. Mate? I mean, you know, I use... I mean, I go and chop them up, basically. You know, when it's wet in the spring, I'm on a sort of four or five times a day slug patrol and they die and the snails die as well. No, I I show no quarter, you know, slug pellets, you know, copper, copper tape for really uh, fancy plants, uh, clearing as much kind of, um, you know, other space in the garden where they could be living. Uh, It's good to have a few frogs around. Which will like, oh, actually what, eat them? What buy, buy some frogs or or, or, or... kind of got to nurture their presence, really? But I think the main thing, you know, after all of this eco talk, actually, is war against slugs. You know, got to get out there with a pair of scissors or a standing knife yeah. and chop them up. Yeah, yeah, nice. I'm on that. I, right, that's it. I've got a two point strategy to kill slugs. <laughs> Talk, man, David. Take care. Take Thank care, you. man. Next week's guest is Stephen Draper, also known as Crazy, a hip-hop producer, DJ and broadcaster. We'll be talking to him about Wiley and his recent comments in the press. And we talk about the grime scene in Bristol. 
Is it the last real working class culture that we have? Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.